many of you have read the screw tape letters that are written by C.S. Lewis. This is this really brilliant satire that he wrote in small little book, but it's basically fictional letters that are that are written by an older seasoned demon named Wormwood, or excuse me, named Screwtape, to his young apprentice named Wormwood. And so Wormwood is trying to keep his his patient, this Christian, from practicing biblical Christianity. And so so this is the advice of one demon to another on how to keep a Christian from growing in the Lord, living out the, the faith. And so one of these letters, uh, there there's so many wonderful parts of this little book, but one of these letters seems almost prophetic in terms of its relevance to us and even to where we're at in the Second Peter today. But this is one of the letters. The older demon writes, My dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Listen to this. Work on their horror of the same old thing. The horror of the same old thing is is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. Your affectionate uncle Screw tape. I'm not sure if anyone could capture the the heart of Second Peter as well as C.S. Lewis does right there. I know that was not intention. As he's as he, and, and he's not just on the mark of capturing Second Peter; he's on the mark of diagnosing what I think are many of the ailments that that plague Western Christianity today. And so you notice that the, the older experienced demon in this fictional work, he, he doesn't say to Wormwood, if you want to corrupt the faith, start taking things away from it. No, he says instead, if you want to corrupt the faith, add to it. Make it Christianity and. Jesus and. The gospel and. Grace and. The Christians start adding things to their simple faith and it will ruin them and so what lewis is talking about in the screw tape letters is is what peter is talking about in this letter uh that and it's it's this attack on the simple sufficiency of christ christianity and jesus is fine and and but but not jesus alone you have to have something in addition to him Grace in Christ is good at the beginning, but you need to move on from there. You have to have higher knowledge. You have to have more ecstatic experiences. These are some of the things that Peter was writing to address. And so he goes out of his way in this letter. As we're going to see, uh, he's going to go out of this way and say, No, that is not it at all. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. 
And so we're going to see growth. The word growth is going to be a key word in, in this letter. And it's really, I would say, the theme of Second Peter. Growth, maturity in the midst of a very hostile environment. And, but it's not growth beyond the grace and knowledge of Christ. As we're going to see, it's growth in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, it, it, first, first Peter, or second Peter, chapter one, verse two. You see this, this kind of this uh, prayer at the beginning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how he begins the letter. You go to the very last verse of the letter. Turn over there to second Peter three eighteen. And how does it end? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. And so I'm titling the series Growing Grace. Now when we tend to talk about growth, even spiritual growth, what do we tend to do? We tend to start with what do I need to do? So give me the spiritual disciplines. Give me the book to read. Give me the habits to form. Give me the programs to walk through. Give me the the structure. Give me the, 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 the list of things to do. But as we'll see in these opening verses, this grace growth doesn't begin with us and what we do. It, it, it Growth begins with remembering Christ and what He has done. That's where growth, that's where it comes from. That's where the roots of growing grace go. And so we're going to be seeing that this morning in these opening verses. And he comes right out of the chute with this. And so the big idea this morning is that the roots of growing grace go deep into the soil of remembrance. It's about looking back. It's about looking to Jesus and what He has accomplished for us. That's where growth is going to come from. Remembering the sufficiency of the grace in Jesus Christ that we have. And so let's look at this text for a few minutes and then we're going to come and worship at the table and we will remember Christ there as well. So I'm going to make, I think, six statements of things we need to remember here about the grace of Christ. First, remember the transformation of grace. Remember the transformation of grace. Now, I can imagine Peter here, knowing that the time of his death, the time of his death is, is at hand, looking back over, the whole, over, over his whole life, kind of reflective, uh, where he's come from, where he has come to by God's grace. And so he starts this letter identifying himself differently than he did in his first letter. He knows this is the last letter he's going to write. And he identifies himself as Simon Peter. Look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So he combines his old name, his birth name, the name his daddy gave him when he was born, He combines that with the name that Christ gave to him when he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah in Matthew 16. And so he's writing it, writing his name like that is is sort of kind of like a a shorthand uh, personal testimony. I I think that's why he does this. He's using both names to testify to the transformation that has come into his life through Jesus Christ and his grace. This is Simon Peter. The grace of Christ brought this radical change into Peter's life. Simon the fisherman became Simon Peter, servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
apostle. That's the one who's sent with the authority of the sender. And, and he's not just any old apostle of somebody. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sent with the authority of Christ to the early church. And so as an apostle, his words that he's writing here, they have divine weight. He's, he, what he writes is to be received by these believers, by, to receive by us is from the Lord Himself. He's a sent one of Jesus Christ. But, but the authority is not Peter's. He is a nobody apart from Christ. It's all about Christ. So he makes that clear by calling himself first a slave or a servant. He's a servant of Christ. So what he's saying, even by the way he identifies himself, is I am a trophy of transforming grace. I am, I am nobody. And here is his, is his lights beginning to fade and his death coming. He doesn't want people clinging to him. He, he wants people going to Christ. He was deflecting the attention off of himself. We're going to see this throughout this letter and he's going to do it in different ways. And so as Peter anticipates his death, the fading away of these apostles, he, he wants the attention on Jesus. So he's reminding them, he's reminding us that this whole thing didn't start with him. It's not about Peter. It's Jesus. He's simply a servant and an apostle of Jesus. And even his name is a reminder that his, his life, the only thing that matters in his life is that He has been transformed by grace. If we want transformation in our lives, in our church, it's going to come through understanding the sufficiency of Christ and His transforming grace. So that's the first thing. We just Remember the transformation of grace. Second, remember the equality of grace. So He identifies Himself as the author, as the letter. Then He identifies the recipients of this letter. But it's not in the normal way. It's not to the churches at or to the saints in. He's, he's not using a. He, he, he's not identifying them by their location. He's identifying them by their salvation. Look at the next phrase. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That word obtained, it's a, it's a unique word. It's used only here and three other times in the entire Bible. And it literally means to obtain by lot, by casting of lots. And the reason he's using this is because it's emphasizing that the salvation that we have, the, the faith we have received, it's not something we worked for or earned or grasped by human effort. It's not it at all. Salvation is not something that's attained. It's something that is obtained. It's it's freely given to us by God's sovereign choice. I know the one of the big news stories this weekend was the lottery and the the Mega Millions jackpot. And so I think they said it'd be up to around 1.6 billion dollars this coming week. I'm not promoing the lottery. Don't don't interpret that as this. But <coughs> whoever does eventually win this thing, they're not going to be able to say after they have the, you know, the giant cardboard check, I earned this. That's not it. The, no, the ping pong balls with their numbers just happen to fall out of the machine and and then uh, in that order and all of that. And so the winners, they simply obtain the prize. They don't, they don't earn the prize. Well, what kind of... And, and so this is... So it is with us. We have... What he's saying is we've obtained this. It's just God's sovereign choice. We've obtained this faith. And what kind of faith do we freely obtain? Is it kind of faith light? 
faith 2.0, kind of faith for dummies. But, you know, you have, are there differing degrees of saving faith? You have the apostolic faith. And then you have eh, the common faith. We, we have that. You have, you have the Jewish faith and you have the Gentile faith. You have the eyewitness of Jesus faith and you have, you know, our, our 2,000 year old written revelation kind of faith. Are there, are there different degrees? Well, Peter says, no. He says his readers, including us, have an equal faith with him. He says with, with us, with, as, as ours. And he's possibly referring to the Jews as he's writing to Gentiles. Or, or I think probably the apostles. Because uh, of the context of the greeting here. He says we, we have, a, you have equal standing. It's not, in, in that, that expression, it's, and it's not as clear in English, but it's not just like we have the same old, same old kind of faith. You know, we, same boring kind of faith. That's not, no, the emphasis in this phrase, it's emphasizing the value and the preciousness of it. We have, we have equally valuable, precious, rich faith, just as the apostles do. It's the same. And this is a direct challenge to the false teachers who were, who were moving among these churches. And they were, they were speaking about this kind of inner circle where you had some who had this special knowledge, but it was only available to these privileged few. And so Peter just knocks the legs out of any feelings of sense of superiority in the, in the church. And he says, no, what we have, we have simply obtained. We didn't earn it. And what we've obtained, it's the same. It's equally valuable and precious. So we, we, we need to remember that in the church today because there are feelings of inferiority and superiority that still linger. And this, this is still something we deal with. Some believers can think they're, ah, I'm just, just part of the family, but I'm not in the inner circle, as it were. Trusted in Christ, but I'm not on the inside with those super-Christians yet. And... And I probably never will be. And so maybe something's missing. I, I watched, uh, I was bored apparently. I was watching uh, a documentary on the Freemasons. It was on, it's on Netflix right now. And it's not that exciting because they don't tell you any secrets. Uh, which is, I'm, you know, that's what I want, salacious secrets. But the, but the Freemasons, on the one hand, as, as they would interview these guys, they, they talk about they're all equals. They're all brothers. And so they're all the same. But they're not. <laughs> They have these different colored aprons and they're, they're in different degrees in this process and they have different access and they, and they have, uh, so, so there's different titles and different honors and so you may be called a brother in that organization but when you're around people of higher rank, uh, you don't feel like they're equal and they certainly don't feel like you're their equal. And so one guy, I thought this was a great quote, he said, we're all equal but of course some are more equal than others. <laughs> Okay, well, that's honesty at least. So you have to slowly climb your way into that inner circle. And so Peter, and so this is, this is how sometimes people think in terms of, of Christianity, even in the, in the church. And Peter demolishes this idea as it pertains to salvation. We've all obtained a faith of equal standing. What makes our faith so equally valuable with even the apostles? And what is it? It's because we all obtained it the same way. So look at the text. We, we've obtained this faith of equal standing, what? By our theological IQ. No. By our ecstatic experiences. By our sacrificial service. By our exemplary morality. 
No, we've obtained this faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're all on equal footing in the faith because of the sufficiency of Christ's grace alone. The sufficiency of the Gospel. We're not saved by our relative righteousness. It's better or worse. It's not because we're better than others. We're, we're, we're saved only by the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ. And so the salvation we've obtained, it's, it has nothing really to do with us. It's not generated by us. It's not based on us. It's not even preserved or sustained by us as we're going to see in verse 3. It's the work of Christ on our behalf. We're saved by grace alone. And it's grace alone that will move us forward in life. And that's what's going to be developed through this letter. Grace, it levels the field in the church. Levels the field. In the church, Then now we don't look around and compare who's higher, who's lower. When we look around, what do we see? We see Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Him. Anytime a church, anytime a person starts to stray away from the sufficiency of Christ and His grace, do you know what you always find? You find the social tear. You, 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 you find some silly man-made hierarchy of spiritual awesomeness. And I'm not criticizing some cult out there. I'm talking, we find residue of this even in, in evangelicalism. Everybody will talk about amazing grace and that we're all saved and we all have equal standing, but in reality there's this kind of expectation that you've got to climb this ladder to, to, to arrive spiritually. You've got to get married. There's, a, there's, a, there's another tier. You've got you to have kids. You've got to have the right number of kids. You've got you to become part of a particular ministry in the church. You've got to have certain spiritual gifts. You have to read certain books. You have to have a certain personality. You have to dress a certain way. You have to support certain causes and very vocally. There's, there's no equality of grace preached or understood. It becomes the in-group. It becomes the out-group. Even in the church. But as we more and more embrace the sufficiency of Christ and His grace, we look at each other and we say, we have a faith of equal standing. Even Peter, the old apostle, could look at as he's writing these believers and he says, you have obtained a faith just as precious as ours. It's just as valuable. And it's because it's why? Because it's by it's through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So we see the transformation of grace. We see the equality of grace. Now let's look in verse 3. Now we're getting into the real meat of the letter here, starting in verse 3, and we get to see the riches of grace. Remember the riches of grace. We're going to come back to verse 2, so I didn't, I didn't skip that on accident. So we'll come back to that at the end. Look at verse 3. And, and just let this statement astound you here. I know you've read this. This is one of the more familiar passages in this letter, but... Just try to see it through fresh eyes. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So with the first real swipe of His pen in this letter, getting past the kind of the, the introduction, He's just swinging for the fence here. It's not, it's not as clear in English. I don't mean to 
like doubt. I can't read the Bible because I don't know Greek or something like. Greek's Eric's favorite language now. But in the in the original language, one of the things that they did in, in the Greek language, they if you want to emphasize something, you just move it forward in the sentence. So um, you know, even if it makes less sense grammatically, you you can, if you want to highlight some point, you just put it right up at the beginning of the sentence. And the the very first thing, the way this sentence begins, is all things. You could read. All things His divine power has granted to us. <laughs> There's this exclamation point on, on the riches of grace that are ours in Christ. We have been granted. It's the idea of that word. It's just freely given. All things pertaining to life and godliness. So the things pertaining to life, which yeah, I, I think is the idea of eternal life, yes, but it's, it's, it's more robust than that. It's spiritual vitality. Everything we need to live as new creatures in Christ. We have it all in Jesus. And godliness, to, to live a God-oriented life, a life that's dependent upon God, a life that's lived for the glory of God in the midst of a corrupt world, as we'll see in verse 4. We have everything we need for that. And what's the source of this incredible, these riches and this privilege? It's Christ's power. His divine power. Now, there, there's a... There's a lot of textual challenges in Second Peter, as I'm discovering. And it's a very difficult letter in a lot of ways. And some very complex uh, sentences and stuff like that. But when it says His divine power, that could mean the Father's power. But I'm connect- I think it's connected to verse 2, where, where Christ Himself is the, is the power giver. Uh, I think that's what's in view here. And So what does this mean? It means that everything you and I need to live this life that God has redeemed you to live... Everything we need, Christ has supplied it by His power. You don't have to go looking outside of Jesus. It's all in Him. What does that mean for us? Listen, what you need in your marriage to live, to, to fully live out the design and the function that God has for your marriage and to glorify Him in it, what you need, Christ has supplied it. Everything you need for parenting right now, and I know how deficient many of us feel in this area, but what we need, Christ has supplied it. Everything you need to, 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 to be set free from the bondage of habitual sin that you've, you're just enslaved to, um, that you can't seem to find freedom from, everything you need for that, He supplies it. He's given it to you. Everything you need to walk through grief and suffering and hardship and pain in life, Jesus has supplied it. And here's why you need to get this, because the majority of the world does not believe that statement. And I would say probably the majority of Christians and churches really don't believe that statement. One of the fastest growing industries in in the United States right now is the self-help industry. It is a $10 billion a year industry that's pumping out books and magazines and conferences and programs all in the name of trying to help us improve our lives so that we can live, you know, find that happiness that just seems so elusive to us. Everything from weight loss to fixing sexual problems to dealing, helping with psychological issues, all the struggles that are common to man, this is, this, is what, this is what this industry is focused on. And, and there's more, this is what's interesting, there's more being done to help people improve themselves than ever before. 
therapy, medications, techniques, all these things, and yet we're more jacked up as a culture today than we've ever been. I think that should tell us something. They can keep pumping out Dr. Phil books, but we just, we're just more and more messed up. But listen, I, I'm not trying to poke fun out there. And I, I'm not saying, okay, there's some common grace even in some of those things. But these ideas have infiltrated the church. I mean, most books in the Christian living section at the Christian bookstore, they're really just self-help books with some God talk in them. And, you, and most, I would say a lot of preaching is just kind of self-help, better yourself preaching. And, but, but this is why I say this, and this is what Peter is dealing with. There's this subtle shift, but it's a dangerous shift. It's a subtle shift to thinking, yes, Christ is good. I love him, but he can't help me here. Yes, Christ has done a lot of good for me, but he doesn't have what I need to walk through this situation. He's wonderful, but he's insufficient when it comes to matters that are as complex as the one that I'm walking through right now. And as much as I love Christ, I've got to go searching elsewhere for the help that I need. This is, what, this is essentially what was happening in the churches that Peter is writing to. This sneaky, subtle, false teaching was, was creeping into the church, an infiltrating church. Christianity and. That's what C.S. Lewis was talking about. Peter's like on top of the table, (laughs) screaming through this letter, pleading for us to remember the riches of grace that are ours in Jesus Christ. We have, by Christ's divine power, been given everything we need for life and godliness. Don't look outside of me. And how did we get these riches of grace? How did we get this power? He says it's through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Everything we need for life and godliness, it doesn't come through knowing Socrates or Voltaire or, or Dr. Phil or... I'm sorry to ding on Dr. Phil. I, that's the only one that comes to mind. Or from, from knowing the latest blogs or from reading the Facebook posts... The power we need has come through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we've been called to this knowledge. Look at that language. We've been called to it. We weren't, we weren't on a search for it. We were sovereignly called. This is like the word elected to it. It's His grace that has made us knowing. We've been called to this knowledge. So remember the, the riches of of grace. This is what Peter is doing right here in verse 3. Now, I can guess what some of you are thinking right now. And I was, had this on you on my heart as, as I was praying earlier. Because I, I sometimes think the same way. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, and I don't think I'm alone. And maybe you can just call me a weirdo. But, but I think there are probably some of you saying, Pastor, I've heard all this stuff before. I'm saying amen with you, but the truth is, I don't sense this divine power. I don't feel like I have all things pertaining to life and godliness. Something seems to be missing in my life anyway. Other people seem to have it, but I don't, I don't think I have it. Why don't I feel rich with grace? 
let me answer your question this way. You, listen, you do not need more than you already have. You need to further discover what you've already been given. Let me say that again. You don't, you don't need more than you already have. You need to further discover what you've already been given. We don't need to go looking for something in addition to the Gospel. We need to further discover what we already have in the Gospel. This is Peter's message to us. This is how he's beginning this letter. Let me just try to illustrate it with this, just a simple little parable. And don't pick this apart because it's just something I thought through this week. You say a man inherits some land, let's say 15 acres. He gets some land. The former owner, the, land, the man he buys the land from, he tells him that this land is very rich when they're doing the sale. And so the new owner, he's just casually walking around his new property, and he's you know, kind of dragging his feet. He, he turns over some leaves with his feet, and lo and behold, there's two diamonds laying right on the surface of the ground. He picks them up, puts them in his pocket, and he says to himself, Wow, this is, this is amazing. I, I am rich, and this land is, is rich. And so he, he, he's so happy about his diamonds. Even months later, he's still happy about his diamonds that he's found and this treasure that he has, but he feels that he needs a little more. And so you think, well, I found diamonds on my property. There's other parcels of land out around me. Maybe I, maybe I can find it there. And so he, he goes outside. He's looking on other tracts of land around him, but he finds nothing. He comes back empty. So he goes back to his own property, and he starts to dig even deeper. And rather quickly, he, he finds two more diamonds, just, just barely below the surface. Finds that, and then as time goes on, he digs a little deeper, and he finds finds more gems hidden in the earth and his land. And he soon discovers what the former owner meant when he said this land is very rich. Well, what, this, so that story. What happened? What happened when he discovered those gemstones? Did he he didn't get more? They were already his the whole time. He already owned them. He didn't need something new, he just needed to discover what he already had. That's my point in the silly little story. So as we talk about growing grace in this letter, you know, things like, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's not, you need more than you already possess. That's not what Peter's saying by this. No, it's that you need to discover deeper what you've already been given. That's what Peter's calling us to. You don't need more of Jesus. I know that's a kind of expression we use. You don't need more salvation. I'd say, I know there, there may be ways we could say this appropriately, but in general, we don't need more grace. What we need to do is discover more what we've already been given in Christ Jesus. Recognize and remember and hope in what we already have in Christ. It's not Christianity and it's Lewis calls in another word, mere Christianity. And we have enough when we have Jesus. And this is why we gather on the Lord's Day. This is why we celebrate the Lord's table. It's to point us back to the riches of grace that we already possess in Christ. And we're digging deeper and deeper and scratching more and more and finding more and more what treasure we already possess in Jesus. This is, what, this is Peter scratching for these believers. He's saying, you have... You're just beginning to understand the riches that are yours in Christ. So remember the riches of grace. Fourth, and we'll move quickly here. Remember the discovery of grace 
Now again, this is a complex sentence, and, and but, he, but he says, so, so through the knowledge of Christ's glory and excellence that we're called to, he has, verse 4, granted to us his precious and very great promises. He's granted, not the usual word forgive, just like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this. It's the, it's the emphasis on the worth of the gift. You could translate this endowed. It's, it's, it's valuable. God, God has given to us at conversion these precious and very great promises. They've been granted to us, endowed to us. It's not just that we have, okay, we have written promises that we can think about and, you know, put on post-it notes and stick on the mirror. That's not it, but that's not all it is. That's true, but we are granted, endowed with the promises themselves. We are brought into them. And they are, they are, they are ours now. These promises became ours when we were spiritually united with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Is we became partakers of Christ and therefore inherited all the promises that go along with our union with Jesus. We have been granted these precious and very great promises. Second Corinthians 1, 20, uh, verse 20 to 22. For all of the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who also has put His seal on us and given us His spirits in our hearts as a guarantee. So we have He's been given these precious and very great promises in Christ. What are some of these promises? Oh, forgiveness of sins. Past, present, future. We have spiritual adoption by God the Father. We have spiritual strength by the Holy Spirit. We have comfort through suffering and hardship. We have provision for all of our needs. We have hope of heaven when we die. We have bodily resurrection when Christ returns. We have, we have the hope of reigning with Him in His kingdom. I mean, this is just, that's just a small sampling of the promises, the precious and very great promises that are ours. So we, we remember this discovery of grace. We've been given these precious and very great promises. They are ours in Christ and nothing will ever take them away. This is, this is foundational in this letter. They have been granted to us, endowed to us, never to be taken back. This is where he begins with them. Fifth, two more. Remember the purpose of grace. That the, the second half of verse 4. So we're given these precious and very great promises so that through them, through those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, so it's, it's, it's so that, it's for this purpose that we become partakers of, of div, the, the, the divine nature. It doesn't mean that we become you know, like God, or little mini-gods or like the demigog Maui and Moana or something like that. Some of you get that. Um, this means that we've come to participate in God. We, we have fellowship with Him by virtue of our union with Christ. We, the Gospel, it's about more than forgiveness and heaven. It's, it's God's power and very presence in our lives today. Henry School Called the, called the, he spoke of the life of God in the soul of man, Puritan. 
the life of God and the soul of man. That's the purpose of grace. That's the promise of the gospel. We are partakers of the divine nature. And then he says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, what does he mean by that? How can, can we really escape the world in this way? I mean, I'm a Christian, but I have this ongoing battle with sinful desire in my own heart. Lust and greed and, and pride and envy. And so what do you mean escape? I struggle with evil desires all the time. Remember, we're granted, look at the context here and the sentence here and the flow here. We're granted precious and very great promises for this purpose. And if you are in Christ, you have escaped their ultimate power over you. You still battle with sinful desires, but because of the promises that have been granted to us, the new birth, 1 Peter 1.3, God's protecting power, 1 Peter 1.5, God's enabling power, 2 Peter 1.3, because of these promises, we can escape the corruption of this world. So again, what he's, wanting, what, he's, what he's urging them, don't get lost in the forest, uh, in, don't miss the forest for the trees here. But he's wanting to overwhelm these believers in these churches who are, who are facing this persecution and just seeing the astounding grace that is ours in Jesus and what its purpose is. And then lastly, we go back to verse 2. Remember the hope of grace. Remember the hope of grace. Verse 2, he, after introducing himself and saying who he's writing the letter to, he gives us this is um, this, this essentially a prayer. May grace and this blessing, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that I don't want to be over te- overly technical here, but the 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 kind of the the phrase "May grace and peace be multiplied" it, it it's it's communicating a wish, a desire, and that's why we see it in that blessing. In this way, Peter's saying, "I I I want this to be so true in your life." And, and this is what I mean by the hope of grace. And, and the way this hope becomes reality is in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I mean, do you, do you wonder what might be hindering your, your growth in the Gospel? Do you know why, you're, why you seem to be having such a hard time growing? It's not because you haven't found the right discipleship manual. It's not because you, you know, you're going to bed too late and you haven't found the right time. It's not the scheduling issue. I'm mean, not saying those things are irrelevant and can't be helpful, but most likely it's because you have too low of an estimation of Christ. The land, brothers and sisters, is much richer than you realize. Dig. Dig. There is wealth. There are riches there. Just dig. Get your hands in there and Dig. You don't see Him. Uh, (coughs) The problem is we don't see Christ and His grace as all-sufficient. We buy into Christianity and. Christianity and Jesus and. Grace and. But there is hope. We can look to Christ today. This is what Peter's calling us back to. This is what the bread and the cup are there preaching to us as we eat and drink in just a moment. This is, this is what we're here for. I read an article on running this week, and it was kind of one of those little clickbait things. I just I can't even find it when I went back to look, but I copied and pasted parts of it. And, and it, was, it was about athletics. It was about, in that realm, not about growing in grace. 
but I thought there there was a spiritual application to us, and what I was what I was reading in in the commentary at the time was helpful. There was a connection that made in my mind. So one of the points in the article was was this: when it comes to athletics, we can limit ourselves just by what we think. Now, when I first read that, I thought that's dumb. <laughs> that sounds very humanistic, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, that kind of thing, and so just just positive thinking. So I, I was ready to dismiss it. But, but as I read further, she went on to explain it made more sense what she was trying to get at. And so she quotes a doctor from Stanford University who, who says this, We don't let ourselves want what we don't believe we can cause, bring about, or make happen. Now again, I realize how humanistic that sounds. But we don't let ourselves want what we don't believe we can cause, bring about, or make happen. And then she uses a, an illustration for this. And it's a powerful illustration. It's out of the four-minute mile when that record was broken. It says, up until 1954, everybody believed that a four-minute mile was humanly impossible. They thought the body would just implode. And then Roger Bannister challenged that belief and proved it to be wrong. He was the first one to run a four-minute mile. You know what happened within a month of him doing that? Someone else did it. And since then, the record has been broken repeatedly. Today it's not considered such an incredible feat. I think the current record is something like 40, uh, three, 3 minutes 43 seconds, which is like 16 seconds faster than Bannister's, which is incredible. She goes on to say, It's the same thing with the 7-foot high jump barrier. Years ago they thought it was humanly impossible to jump 7 feet in the high, in the high jump. Today they warm up at that height. And then here's how she closes the paragraph. What have you bought into... Who are you listening to? Where are you limiting yourself? Now, again, she's simply trying to inspire athletes to achieve, you know, greater feats or something like that. But I, I think there's a connection here, and, and, and if we can make that application spiritually. Um, what, 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 you know what Peter's saying? He's saying you're, you're limiting yourself, not because of your low estimation of yourself, but you're limiting yourself because of your low estimation of Christ. And, and so she, we, we don't... We don't let ourselves want what we don't believe that Christ has caused can bring about or make happen. And, and, and so we, what are we bought into? Well, who are we listening to? Where, where are we limiting Christ? That's, what, that's the application. Jesus is far greater. He's far more precious. He's far more powerful than even the most spiritual person in here has ever imagined. Just know that. That is true for every single one of us. And so Peter, he's saying throughout this letter and right out of the gate, remember, remember, remember Him. Remember grace. This is what this table is for. It's a reminder that everything we have, everything we need is in Christ. It's meant to destroy that little conjunction and that we so often put right after Christianity. It's it's. Christianity, period. It's Christ, period. It's grace, period. It's the gospel, period. And listen, I'm preaching to the preacher here. Uh, This is my struggle every day. I struggle every day to believe the promises of the gospel. I have to preach this to myself all the time because every day I struggle with the temptation to believe that Christ is not enough. But the rhythm of our lives must be constantly coming back to this refrain when we sing often it's just all we all we have is Christ it's him 
This table is not meant to inspire us to improve ourselves. It's meant to highlight the fact that we are bigger sinners than we ever imagined. And yet, Jesus is a bigger Savior savior than we ever considered or fathomed. So this is what we come, this is why we eat, this is why we drink. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you. We thank you that you have not left us here to just try to kind of figure out life on our own. We thank you for this, the words that Peter wrote to this church that are inspired by you and profitable to us. And, and the, these believers who, like us, were wondering how they were going to go on, how they were going to make it through this life. Uh, and, and, and then you, you, you hold forth to us this, this promise this of divine power for everything we need. Not coming from us, not innate in us, not, not that we need to evoke from within inside of us, but we look to Jesus. And so, Father, would you help us? Would you wean our affections from, and wean our trust from lesser things that we would find our joy and delight and peace and hope in you alone, that we would find our sufficiency in Christ alone? And that, 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 that and Lord, use this table, these reminders as we sing, as we eat and drink, to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.